Gospel chapter 17. Uh, This is where we were this morning, and we shall continue tonight and hopefully finish this this evening. Uh, John 17 is, of course, uh, the great prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Really, this is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Matthew 6 is the disciples' prayer where he taught his disciples. But really, this is his personal prayer. We said this morning, this is the longest recorded prayer of Christ in Scripture. Uh, It is written verbatim, uh, exactly as Christ prayed it. Uh, John, the Gospel writer, wrote this several decades after this happened, but it was so uh, emblazoned in his heart and mind, and the Holy Spirit brought it back to him, of course, and uh, so that he was able to put this down as he heard it and as he remembered And uh, so we're very blessed that we have this prayer. This is the, undoubtedly, this is the greatest prayer in the entire Bible. Out of all of the 650 plus prayers that are mentioned, this is the greatest prayer. We said this morning it can be easily divided into three sections. Verses 1 to 5 that we spoke about this morning. And really this is where Jesus is praying for himself and telling the Father that his work on earth is done. Verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples and that his Father would keep them and sanctify them. And then the last portion, verses 20 to 26, lastly, he prays for you, he prays for me, and he prays for the whole church, that we may be one and that we may see him in his glory, and that we may share in his glory with the Father in heaven. And so it's a wonderful, intimate, personal prayer between the Son and the Father. But not that personal that he didn't let others hear it. Uh, He was in earshot of these disciples listening. Uh, I would have loved to have been there listening uh, just to sense the earnestness of his heart and to hear the inflection of his voice and what he put emphasis on and how he spoke that. But we have got the next best thing. We have it here in writing. And of course we have the Holy Spirit to uh, teach us. And so rather than read all of it again, uh, I'm going to pick up where we left off this morning and start at verse 6, and then we will uh, read it as we go through, just actually to save us a little bit of time this evening. So in verse 6 he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world, and they have kept your word. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me. Now we have already stated in this series that the names of God revealed the nature of God. It tells us somewhat of who God is, what God is like, his character, uh, what his heart is like towards human beings. And we looked at some of those names in this series. We looked at particularly some of the composite names, the names that was prefixed with the word Jehovah. Like Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jehovah Rophika, the Lord our healer. Or Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Or Jehovah Rophi, the Lord is my shepherd. And there were several of those names. And of course, great names like El Elyon, or Adonai, or Elohim, or El Shaddai. All these are the great names of God. But there was one name in the Old Testament which was a tremendous name, and it was I Am. Moses said, when I go to Pharaoh, who will I say sent me? And God says, tell him, I am has sent you. I am that I am. And whenever Jesus was on the earth, uh, whenever he said things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of life. I am the water of life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the good shepherd. When he was doing that, he was revealing, he was manifesting the Father's name. He was revealing who he, the Father, was because he did everything the Father did. He spoke the words that the Father spoke. And so in that sense, he was revealing who the Father was to them. So he says, I have manifested, manifested your name to the men that you have given me. Of course, the greatest name that he used in the New Testament was the word Father. And we talked much about that, which I haven't really time to go into tonight. But do you realize that the word Father is mentioned 122 times in the Gospel of John? 
It was a very, very important thing uh, to Christ that his disciples would finally realize the fantastic reality of the truth that God, almighty God in heaven, was their father. And so, seven times in all, he says in this prayer, that you and I are the Father's gift to him. We talked about that this morning. And so, it puts us in a very privileged position to know that the Father has given us to him. Seven times he prayed, for those that you have given me. What a blessing that is to know that. And then verse 7 and 8, he continues... Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have surely known that I come forth from you, and that they have believed that you have sent me. And they believed that you have sent me. Now this is a remarkable statement. Of all the multitudes that heard Jesus speak. Of all the untold multitudes that saw his miraculous works, very few, just literally a handful of people in the whole nation believed that Jesus was the Son of the Father. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that his own brothers even believed that. And so, this is remarkable. The religious rulers certainly by and large, did not believe it. The governing authorities, they did not believe it. The intelligentsia, the academia of his day, and the philosophers, they did not believe this. But these unlearned and ignorant fishermen, these rural Galileans, uh, these people without any official rabbinical training in theology, they believed him. They believed that he was sent from the Father. That's what he's saying here. Isn't it amazing? Out of such a, 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 a multitudes of people that heard, at the end of the day, even in the upper room, after Jesus had died and buried and rose, resurrected and had gone back to heaven, even after that, in the upper room, there was only 120 people. Could you imagine if, if God raised up, say, a man in this nation, because of roughly the same population. Can you imagine if, if God raised up a man in this nation that went forth showing signs and wonders and miracles and was an unbelievably wonderful teacher and he went through every city in this nation, every town, every hamlet, every village and he healed and did miraculous signs all over and then after three years he decided to build a church. Can you imagine only 120 would turn up? I think he couldn't get a building big enough to put them into. But this is all believed that he came from the Father. And so after three years of the Master speaking to them every day, finally, at the last, they finally get it. They believed that he came from the Father. Nothing much has changed these days. How much of this world truly believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That he was sent from the Father? How many scientists, how many philosophers, how many of the intelligentsia and the academia of today, how many ministers? Do you know that a vast amount of Vicars and bishops of the Church of England do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they stand on a pulpit every Sunday, Sunday and they do not believe that. You could not convince them of that. Nothing much has changed, is it? Should that surprise us? You know, way over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said this in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. 
Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Lots of disputers in this age we live in, isn't there? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It's impossible to know God through this world's wisdom. And God in his wisdom made it that to be so. That's what that's saying. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen, the things which are not, that count for nothing in this world, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And so Jesus prays. He's thanking the Father for these who believe that he was sent from God. Then in verse 9 and 10, he said, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't care for the world. In fact, within a matter of hours, Jesus was going to lay down his life for the world. So he obviously cared for the world. But at this moment, at this, in this prayer, just prior to going to the cross, just an hour away from being betrayed by Judas, just the very next day in mid-afternoon, he'd be crucified, hanging dead on a cross. At this moment, his focus, right at this point, is on his disciples. And he's praying for them. He cared deeply for them. He was really concerned about them, especially in the light of what they were going to be going through. In one hour's time, the most of them would have run for their lives. Peter, in a couple of hours, was going to deny Jesus with oaths that he ever even knew the man. The next day, only a few women and John, actually, just a handful, just a few, stood at the cross and watched him being crucified. Yet amazingly, here he is, stating categorically that they belong to him and they belong to the Father. In spite of all that they're going to do that will be wrong and shameful very, very soon, in spite of the most catastrophic failure of their lives, in spite of all of that, he's praying for them. And he said, they belong to me and they belong to you. And I am glorified in them. Now, I don't know about you, but that encourages me. Because that lets me know that Jesus just doesn't see us as we are with all of our faults and feelings and weaknesses. He sees what we're going to be complete in Him and what we're becoming in Him. Can somebody say amen to that? If He just looked at us and saw all our faults and feelings and weaknesses, He would have given up a long time ago. But he didn't. He says, we belong to him. And we belong to the Father. With all of our faults and feelings, he's working on us, isn't he? And then in verse 11, he says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. You know, you just can sense in that sentence that he's really longing to be with the Father. He knows that he is just literally ours to go on this earth. He's been on this earth for 33 plus years. It's been a long time. It seems short, but it's been a long time. 
But now he knows that reunion with the Father is just around the corner. Nothing can prevent it. It's as good as done. He's finished with this world, at least as far as his flesh is concerned, until he returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And then he says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept. None of them is lost, except the son of perdition, which was Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now Jesus is well aware here that within the next 24 hours, his disciples' faith is going to be shaken to its very foundation. And up to now, he's been with them. He's not going to be with them very shortly, but up to now, he's been with them. He's protected them. He's looked out for them. He's comforted them. He's guided them. He's blessed them. He's answered their questions. He's calmed their fears. But even though he's kept them, now he's leaving them. And he prays, Father, I've kept these men in your name. And I'm adding for these three years. But now I go to be with you. Now, Father, you keep them. You keep them in your name. They're in your hands now. And boy, they needed to be in the hands of God, didn't they? You keep them. He was thinking, they're going to be confused, they're going to be frightened, and they're not know what side of them's up. In a few hours, they're going to run for their lives. All hell is going to break loose. They have no idea the trouble they're going to be in in a few hours. And Father, I won't be here to take care of them. So, I put them into your hands. Isn't Christ so considerate? Isn't he so thoughtful? Here were these men who had failed them so many times, and yet he loved them so deeply and dearly. He just still wanted to protect them from the evil one. Keep through your name those you have given me. God is well able to keep us. Listen to what Jude said in his little letter. Verse 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. God has got a vested interest in your life. He paid an incredible price for you to make you a gift to his son, costing the blood of his own son. Can you imagine the pain the father must have felt when Jesus was on the cross and he had to turn his back away? He had to turn from him? So he's got a vested interest in you and me. And he is able to keep us from falling. He really is. But we've got to believe that. That's not perfectionism, by the way. But we've got to believe at the end of the day. If we look to him, he'll lift us up. He'll keep our feet right. The Bible says he makes our feet like hind's feet. We shall walk upon our high place. Did you ever see those mountain goats? Take your breath away when you see them walking around the edge of those mountains. You're just waiting for them to fall, but they're sure-footed, aren't they? And God can keep our feet in the tricky times, in the difficult places. Whenever we feel like slipping, God can lift us up, but we've got to run to Him. We've got to ask Him. We've got to... And then He said these words, verse 13. But now I come to you. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
incredibly, right here in the middle of this prayer, he reveals that his heart is filled with joy. You know, I've I read over the years where people said, well, the Bible never said Jesus laughed, but it says he wept. So the implication is that Jesus ran about with a great big long sad face. That's the implication of that. But I don't believe he did. I believe he rejoiced. Could you imagine, for instance, can you imagine Jesus at the, the marriage supper in Cana of Galilee? Can you imagine him sitting in the corner of a great big long face? And the bride and the groom and everybody else is enjoying. I just cannot get my head out. I can't imagine that. I imagine he laughed, he rejoiced, he was blessed, he was pleased. And here he is, about to go through an incredible magnitude of suffering, concerned about his disciples. And in spite of knowing what was just about to happen, his heart is full of joy. How can that be? Well, the book of Hebrews gives us a good clue. Hebrews 12 and 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, what is it? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In spite of all that he was going to face, he looked beyond that. And he was filled with joy about the reward. But all that would come out of him going to that cross. Now he said, this is a biggie. Now he said, let my disciples, let them be filled with this joy. The joy that I've got, Father, let them get it too. Do you think that God answered that prayer? Do you think he did? I think so. I was reading this this afternoon. This is lovely. Next, next chapter 5. One of those trials, those mock trials that the religious hierarchy did against the disciples, the apostles. And here was one of them. Remember Gamaliel, that great learned Pharisee. And he said, well, hold on a minute. He says, if, if this is truly of God, he says, we can't stop it. If it's not of God, it'll peter out, it'll die off. Because there's been others claimed there were Christ and there were disciples, but, and it came to nothing. So if this is nothing, it'll die out. But if this is truly God, you can't fight against it. So he said, and then they said, verse 40, and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Can you imagine they're on trial? All these people hate their guts. <coughs> they wanted to kill them. And then felt because of the crowd and what was happening, couldn't do the next best thing. Let's give them a good hiding. I mean, let's really beat them up. Let's teach them a lesson. Let them go. And the disciples were filled with joy. They were so happy that they had actually been counted worthy to suffer shame in Jesus' name. Oh, that's a different story, isn't it? And that's what Jesus prayed for. That's what he prayed for. That they too could see beyond the present suffering and see men and women and boys and girls come to the Savior. Verse 14, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because you are not all, because they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. There's a reason why the world will hit us. Because we don't fit into its mold. We have a different worldview, different mindset, different attitudes, different actions. At least I hope we have. If we don't have 
then we really, really, really need to examine our hearts. John, his first epistle says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Hmm. Do you know how you know you love the world more than you love the Father? I was thinking this the other night. This just came to me. If what you're up to on a Saturday night makes you more happy than coming to church on Sunday, the love of the Father is not in you. It's not. It truly isn't. And you really need to ask the question, do I really, truly know Christ? Because you may be fooling yourself. Lots of people fool themselves coming to church and they're in the atmosphere and they know all the words to say and the songs to sing. But they live a different life on Saturday night. I'm serious. I mean, this is eternal stuff we're talking about here. Your very eternity may depend on it. If you prefer what you do on Saturday night to the house of God on Sunday, you've got a serious, serious problem. You need to go home and ask God, God, am I, am I really saved? Am I really? Try to be so blunt. Well, I'm not sorry. I meant to be so blunt. See, this word hates us because, notice what he said, because I've given them your word. Ah, now we're getting to the bottom of it. This word runs contrary to God's word, doesn't it? This word hates God's word. Nothing is more attacked and lampooned Nothing is more try to be discredited than the living word of God. It isn't. No book on earth is attacked more than the word of God. Satan hates the word of God. He may be the God of this word, but he's not our God. <coughs> Romans 12 and 2. Do not be conformed to this word, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are you going to renew your mind? By the Word of God. If you don't read the Word of God, if you don't know the Word of God, you're just going to think the way the Word thinks. Do you know that in all the, the, uh, the surveys and censuses they take in the Christian church, do you realize that large segments of the Christian church believes exactly the way the Word believes? Because they don't know the Word. And they believe what they hear. They take their chew from television, from newspapers, from programs, from movies, from every other ungodly source they can find because they don't know the Word. And if somebody out there says, well, this must be right because this is what everybody thinks, they well, everybody thinks that must be right. No, you'd almost guarantee it's wrong if everybody thinks that. We need to think what God thinks. And this is why I keep hammering about the Word of God. Because if you don't know the Word of God, you're gonna, somebody else is going to make up your mind for you. And it won't be what God thinks. Somebody else will be sealing your mind with, with philosophies and this word's wisdom that's not of God. Warren Wearsby. I like what he said. I like a lot of things he says, but I like this. He said when Jesus speaks of himself in this prayer, he simply calls God Father. You noticed that, didn't you? Because there's no barriers between him and the Father. There's no disharmony. But when he speaks of his disciples and us, he calls God Holy Father. Ah, Holy Father. Because there are barriers that come between us and the Father. And he's a holy God. He's a holy God. We talk about the Holy Spirit. That's just not a, just a title. It means something. And there's all kinds of stuff that would want to come into our lives that would be unholy. All of us are bombarded with stuff that's unholy. Now, if you're not careful, it gets in on you. And Jesus knew this. 
but God's holy, he's pure. Therefore, we need to reverence him. Then when he speaks of the world, he calls God righteous father. Ah, righteous father. You see, between, between the father and the world, there's a cross. And it was the world who crucified God's son on that cross. And God's going to make the world deal with that cross. If they're ever going to come to him, they're going to have to come through that cross. They're going to have to come to the cross. It's going to have to be dealt with. Because he's a righteous God. And he's a righteous judge. So when he spoke to God about himself, calls him Father, when he talks about the disciples and us, he says, Holy Father. But when he talks about the word, he says, Righteous Father. By the way, I think that was John Phillips said that, not Warren Wearsby. I'll think of something to quote from him later. Just to be technically right. Because somebody's sure to point my mistake out. All right. And he says this. We're okay for time, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Verse 15 and 16. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of it. One day we'll be taken out of this world, but not right now. Not right now. Right now, we're here until he comes or he calls, however long that may be, and nobody knows. We believe it's soon, but nobody knows for sure when. And until that time, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're the ones that should be shining the love of God to the world. We're the ones that should have the glory of God in our lives. We're the ones that people should get to know that some of the nature and the character of God will be in our lives. And if it isn't, then we're in trouble. So he says, I'm not praying right now that they be taken out of the world. Well, he was desperate for them to be with him. We'll talk about this in a moment. But right now, they're in the world. Going to have to deal with it. They're my ambassadors. And that's where you and I are right tonight. In it, but not of it. Then he said, sanctify them by your truth. Sanctify them. Set them apart for a holy purpose. Because that's what sanctify means. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. D.L. Moody one time said, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. <laughs> Simple way of putting it, isn't it? There's something about the Word of God that separates us, sanctifies us. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 9 of Psalm 119. How shall a young man cleanse his way? David said, by taking heed according to your word. When those temptations come to do the wrong thing, if the Word of God is in our heart, the Word of God will come up as a reminder and as a shield in our hearts. But it can't come up if it's not in there, can it? This is what sanctifies us. Warren Wearsby, here he is now. He says, God's Word comes to us in three ways. I like this. First way, his word is truth. This is the truth of God. This is the gospel truth. You can count on this as truth. Devil hates it. Wants to make it out as a great big lie. 
the God delusion, Mr. Hawkins, Dawkins, beg your pardon, says. The God delusion. Ever as a man was deluded as him? This is the truth. This is the anvil that has worn out many hammers. <clears throat> See all these new atheists that are today? Not much new about them. They've always been around in every generation. But where are they today? They're gone. And this lot will be gone one day too. And the word of God will just keep them straight on. It's an anvil that's worn out many hammers. So, he said, first way, his word is truth. Verse 17, we read it there. His son is the truth. John 14 and 6. He was the truth made flesh. John said so, didn't he? He says, we beheld him as the only begotten of the, of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld him and they held him. He was truth embodied in a person. Never lied. No lie. No deceit found in him. Because he is truth. And then, of course, the third way is the Holy Spirit is the truth. 1 John 5 and 6. He is the spirit of truth. So here's what he says, with the mind we learn God's truth. With the heart we love God's truth. And with the will we yield to the Holy Spirit and we live God's truth. That's good, isn't it? So we've got lots of truth, haven't we? In fact... Jesus makes seven references to God's word in this one prayer. So God's word was very, very important to Jesus on this earth, wasn't it? With it, he overcome those temptations in the wilderness. Every time the enemy came, he battled them off with the word of God, didn't he? You notice how the word of God just rose up in his heart. That wasn't because he was the word of God in human flesh. Because he limited himself when he came to this earth. It's because he learned it. He was taught it from his mother's knee. He grew up when he was 12 years old. He was so full of the word that he amazed the doctors and the learned men in the temple. <laughs> Even when he spoke from the very cross. <clears throat> and, he's, and he's agonizing, dying Breath. He was able to quote the word. So full of it. So he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In verse 18, 19. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Six times in this prayer Jesus said he was sent from the Father. He was the sent one. And he's telling these disciples, they're sent ones. Now, they were sent in a special way, especially the apostles. The apostles were particularly sent ones, different, uniquely different than you or I. None of our names will ever adorn the foundations of the New Jerusalem. But theirs will. But nevertheless, to the measure that we have, we too are sent ones. We are sent into this world. Go into every man's world and preach the gospel. I can't go into your world. I can't turn up at your workplace tomorrow and introduce myself and say to you, good to see you. Hey, can I share the gospel with you? I mean, they would escort me out of that place fast, but you're in there. I can't go into your world. But God has got you in your world and you're there for a purpose. And it's to share the love of God. It's to share Christ, not in an obnoxious way, but in a sensitive, pure way. And then in this final part of this great prayer, he prays specifically for you and for me. 
for his church. Because verse 20 said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Over 20 centuries has passed since Jesus prayed that prayer. And do you know what? That prayer is being answered every hour of every day. Every hour of every day, somebody somewhere is coming to Christ. In every nation, in every continent. And they've been doing it for centuries. They've been coming to Christ one by one by one by one. Boys and girls, men and women, they're coming to Christ. You and I are probably sitting here tonight by virtue of the fact that the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary vines that ever lived, heard that Macedonian call, got that vision, come over and help us. And he went to Philippi. And when he got to Philippi, who got saved? The jailer and his family. And then the first church in Philippi was born, right there. Right there. First church in Europe was born right there when he got put into jail. And from that place, the gospel spread all over Europe. It took a lot of years. There was dark ages, there was bad times. But eventually, one way or another, the word, the gospel word was passed from one to another till eventually somebody shared it with you and somebody shared it with me. And here we are today, sitting here tonight. Because that prayer was answered. Jesus said, but also for those who will believe me through their word. Greatest means of reaching anybody for Christ is one-on-one. Thank God for the big crusades. Thank God for the vines, the mighty evangelists who's, who's out there, you know, bringing in hundreds of thousands of souls. But listen, they're not bringing them in. It's the people, the believers in those nations that are bringing them to the cross. The evangelists preach the word and they come forward. That's the way it works, isn't it? And then he said, verse 21 that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may believe that you sent me. He's very concerned that people believe that he is with sent one, that he is who he said he was. That they may be one as you, Father, in me and I in you. The oneness of the church is important to Christ. It's important to the world, actually. Now, within this professing church that we call Christendom today, there are many, many, many divisions. Whenever we go to Ukraine, often we see those Russian Orthodox priests walking down the street with their long gowns and their long beards. They don't like the born-again ones. When Pastor Alexander puts up the posters in the villages that they're coming to preach, it's the priests who tear them down. Then you have the Greek Orthodox Church and the Coptic Church. You have the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Anglicans, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Evangelicals, the Pentecostals, the Charismatics, and a host of sects and even cults. All of them claiming to know Christ and to love him and serve him. And with all those various streams, there's many more than I've mentioned. There's all kinds of different emphases and stresses put upon all kinds of doctrines. Some of the doctrines are very, very divisive. Some are, are necessarily divisive, actually. But yet, in spite of all of that, and this is Jesus' prayer, in spite of all of that, there still is, underneath all of that, there is one true body of Christ on earth. There's one true body. A lot of professing people, but there's one true body. And God knows who they are. Many years ago, when I was working with the ministers in this town and tried to get them involved, I remember the very, very first meeting I ever had to try to get them together to do stuff together. The very first meeting was in my home. 
And the very first thing I said to him, I remember it well because I paused when I said it to see the reaction. Whenever we all adjust ourselves and we want to start official business, I said, there's only one church in this town. And I stopped. And I said, we all meet in different buildings on Sunday morning. <laughs> but there's only one church. There's only one body of believers in this town. And that's the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we meet in different buildings. Yes, we emphasize different doctrines. And hopefully they're all good doctrines. And biblical. But there's only one body. When God looks down, he looks beyond the tags. He looks beyond the tickets that's on us. He sees one body. And how refreshing it is when you meet another believer from somewhere else. They may think, a little bit different. They, they may worship differently. They may not clap their hands like we do. They may not sing for 45 minutes like Clifford does. They may not preach for an hour and a half like I do. <laughs> See how I got myself in there, Clifford, too? That'd probably drive them nuts. And we'd probably go to them that would drive us nuts. But you know what? God's with them on Sunday mornings with us. If, if, if they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died, that he rose again, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, that his blood still cleanses from all sin, if they believe that in some of those basic truths, then they are my brother and my sister, and we're one family. And so there's happy clappy, there's smells and bells, and there's everything in between. <laughs> everything in between. But if we're part of this big family that God's got, then that's wonderful, isn't it? And so this is not a man-made, contrived, devised unity, some kind of ecumenical thing that man has drummed up to appear. Look, we're one. God's not interested in that stuff. He's interested in reality and truth. But listen, let's go a little bit further before we finish. He said that the world might believe that you have sent me. There's something about, and this is why it's important in the local church, there's something about unity. If the world out there sees that the believers in here truly love each other and are not fighting and backbiting and hating each other's guts and lying about each other and gossiping each other, if they truly see that we genuinely clear, as Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if what? If you love one another. That's the litmus test. Not if you dot all your I's and cross all your T's and have got all your doctrinal ducks in a row. You could have all of that and not love each other. But that's a litmus test. Because the world hates hypocrites, don't they? They hate hypocrites. They despise them. They would rather you just be a, just a big sinner like they are than say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. And yet all you do is just pull down every believer you can think of. It. They hate that. And God hates it. And so the world needs to see the local body of believers as one worshipping and working together and harming and you. No division, no animosity, no backbiting, loving one another, serving one another. And of course, we must, absolutely must, we must be able to share the love of God with others. And the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfect in one. The glory he's speaking of here is not the glory that he spoke about earlier. That was his pre-incarnate glory. That was the glory he talked about that he had with the Father before the world was. The glory he's talking about here is the glory of the life he lived on the earth. This was the glory that he manifested daily when he went about ministering and blessing all those he came into contact with every day. Now he said, that was the glory I have given them. That's the glory he passed on to his disciples. That's the glory he wants to pass on to us. He prays for us to be made perfect in one. 
You know, in our sanctification, it's always been said there's a difference between our standing and our state. As far as our standing is concerned, we're complete in Him, the Bible says. In fact, it says we're seated in heavenly places with Him. The job's already done. That's our standing. But what about our state? What about every day? What about our lives right here and now? Well, that's a different thing, isn't it? Because as long as we're in this present world, with all of its limitations and with all its temptations, we're going to constantly need to sanctify ourselves, to live that separate life before God. That's what it means. Remember Jesus, remember how that how he was washing the disciples' feet and he came to Peter. And Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. Of course, they should have been washing his when they came out at the start, but they were all great leaders, you see. They didn't see themselves as servants. So Jesus was teaching about servanthood. But you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, that's fine. He says, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. That really shook Peter up. He didn't want that, did he? So he said, oh, well, not only my feet, Lord, then all of me. Remember what Jesus said? Don't need to do that, he says. Don't need to do that. You've already been washed. It's just your feet has got dirty. Probably had a bath before he left to come to the supper. But on the way there, he got his feet dirty. So he said, you've already been washed. It's just your feet is dirty. Listen, we've already been washed in the blood of the Lamb, haven't we? I mean, that, that's our standing. That's, that's, that's it. Can't take that away. But our feet gets dirty in this, walking through this world, doesn't it? And how do we sanctify? How do we wash our feet? By the Word. The washing of the water by the Word. That's what the Bible says. By the way, he did say in that scripture, he says, but not all of you are clean. He's thinking about Judas. Not all of you are clean. Verse 23. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. What an incredible statement. Did you get it? Did I read it too quick? Did you miss it? I'll read it again. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Incredible. The Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus, his Son. See, that's too good to be true. Well, I wouldn't have believed it except Jesus said it. So I have to believe it. It must be true. Say, well, I don't know how he could. I don't know either. Certainly didn't deserve it. But he does. And have loved them as you have loved me. No love is deeper, no love is wider, no love is broader, no love has got greater scope, no love is more lasting, more precious, more costly, more gracious and forgiving than the love of the Father towards you tonight. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. I better go quick, because we're going over time. I should have took this in three parts, but I committed myself to prayer and fasting next Sunday to talk about that, so we better continue, all right? As Bamber Gascoigne said years ago, you start it so you can finish. Now it's warm, and you're getting tired, and some of your eyes begin to droop, but hang in there with me, please, just for a few more moments. Father, I desire they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Did you ever have one of those moments that for some reason or another you really, really miss somebody? Maybe a loved one who's departed. Maybe a relative, brother, sister, Father, mother, who lives afar off. You're separated by thousands of miles. Or maybe one of those moments when something really exciting happens to you. Just in that moment, you wish that some person was there to share it with you. Well, that, that's the kind of feeling I get about Jesus here. He's having one of those moments. He knows that he's soon to go back to the Father. He knows that he must leave them all behind. The cross is before him. Heaven awaits him. 
how he longs to be with the Father. But he's now considering his children. He knows it's necessary for him to go away because if he doesn't go away, the Holy Spirit can't come. That's what he said. But he so desperately wants when he goes, even though they have to stay, he's really prayed that, but he so desperately wants them in that moment to be able to see him with the glory that he once had with the Father. He wants them to see him sitting enthroned and crowned with the glory that he had before the world was. Just in that moment, you can sense that that's what he wants. He desperately wants to share that glorious moment that will last for all eternity. <laughs> and do you know what? We're going to get that moment. And it will last for all eternity. O righteous Father, verse 25, the world has not known you. Imagine after all this time, after all those miracles, after all those wonderful teachings, after the great and mighty works and wonderful words, the world still does not know the Father. After 2,000 years, we have to put our hands up and say, the world still doesn't know the Father. There are great swathes, nations. There are people, there are untold millions of people that has never once heard the name of Jesus. Not ever one time. They know nothing about him. They don't know God as Heavenly Father. They don't know he had a son. Nothing. Isn't that a shame? Whose fault is that? Our fault. That was the Great Commission. Go into all the world. How many goes into all the world? So he's concerned about that. The world has not known you. The fields are already white on the harvest. Yeah, thank God for the millions who have come to Christ. Thank God for them. But I'm speaking, relatively speaking, there's six billion people on earth. A lot of people, isn't it? A lot of people that hasn't heard about Christ. But he's praying for that harvest to come in. He says, when I, when I name, when I have preached, when I'm preached throughout the whole world, he says, then will the end come. Hasn't come yet. Hasn't been preached throughout the whole world yet. Hasn't come yet. Then he goes on to say, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. If the world is ever going to be reached for Christ, it's only going to happen through us. You say, David, I can't go to Africa or India or the Philippines. I don't know what. You can go to the office, to the factory floor. Go to your next door neighbor. There's people living beside you who doesn't know Christ. They've heard about him, but they don't know him. They're not saved. Have you ever, ever, ever shared Jesus with them? This is what he's talking about here. The greatest revelation that the world will ever know is this one thing, that God sent his son into the world to take away their sins. That's it. That's the greatest revelation they'll ever get. That's the thing. When that dawned on us, when the Holy Spirit opened up our minds and our hearts to that reality, our lives were changed forever. Isn't that the case? And so Christ has given us the privilege of knowing the Father by name. We know his nature. We know his character, his love, his mercy, his compassion. We know all about that. And then in the final words of this remarkable prayer, he prays above all things, that the Father's love that is in him may also be in us. That's what he prays. Because if the Father's love is not in us, Paul says we are just a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Somebody says empty cans make the most noise. We make a lot of noise, but do our words and our works match. If he is in us, as Paul said in Romans 5 and 5, then the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Thank God for that. Amen. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. 
It's fascinating that John recorded that prayer because that was John's theme, love, wasn't it? That was his great theme in his gospel, his great theme in his epistles, love. Paul wrote about it too, didn't he? And the greatest of these is what? Love. That's it in a nutshell, isn't it? For God so loved the world. And so there is Christ's beautiful, majestic, magnificent prayer. Do you know what? If I put that Bible away for a month and come back in a month's time, you could preach that all over again and you could get as much out of it again. You never could exhaust the mine of wealth that's in that prayer. I can't, nobody can. But I enjoy trying. I've enjoyed trying, amen? Let's pray. Stand with us, please. I know it's been very hot, and we're just going to pray, and then we're going to dismiss you. Second cup's open tonight, isn't it, downstairs? Yeah, it's open. Don't forget, man, Wednesday night, 7.30.